The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Well, I'm so thankful you're here. Um, sorry for the last, we were supposed to do it last time and I had to have a procedure. So hopefully, we're talking about baptism. If, you, if you've forgotten that, we're in big trouble. But you haven't, right? You know that's why you're here, right? We're trying to make a distinction between paedo-baptist and credo-baptist. So when I say credo-baptist, you think what? Credo-baptist, you think? Believer's baptism, very good. Credo, right, you're making a, a profession. When I say paedo-baptism, you think, you think babies. That's good. So we want that distinction, right? Um, so we've done some development historically, which I want to do a very brief review. I want to I break off from the Reformation, and I want to jump into Calvin, because Calvin really developed Zwingli's doctrine um, on this. And tonight, my goal, my goal, I think it's too ambitious. I looked at it earlier today. I'd like to just get you an under, a basic understanding of the covenantal nature of this doctrine and why our Presbyterian brothers do what they do. Um, they're not crazy. They have a theology that shapes their doctrine. Okay? Um, my goal is to not um, teach a master's or doctoral level class on the doctrine of baptism in the context of Reformed theology. My goal is to get you enough information where you, get, you understand it and then you can probe further. This doctrine has been developed for over 500 years by the, some of the most brilliant minds in the history of the church. So it's not, it's not something that we can just go, you know, um, it's foolish, okay? Um, I do believe it's not biblical, and, and obviously if you're Baptistic, you probably believe the same, but we can't just write it off as, ha ha, baptizing babies, that's dumb. Right, that's not, that's not a good way to approach it. Um, so when we, look, when we think about baptism, we think about the objective work of God in, in, in saving people. Right? And some of those, what are some of the objective things that God does to save someone? What does he do independent of you initially? What does he do? Yeah, so he makes you from being a dead person to a living person. Good. What else? I mean, that really is the key, right? That comes through the gospel being proclaimed, right? We talked about the efficacious calling that God enables you through the Spirit to actually hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and repent, right? So there's work that God does on you to make you alive. And so that's the objective work of God. At the same time, there's a subjective response, which is what? You actually do believe. You actually do repent. You actually do get baptized, and you actually do join a church, Right, so in the context of a believer's baptism, God is working and you are participating and engaged in that work. Okay? So we talked about the necessity of both those things happening. We also talked briefly about the progression of paedo-baptism in the history of the church. And so in the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, if you have no other theology, you believe who's being baptized. If you just read the New Testament, who do you think is being baptized? Believers, right? Someone who is able to make a credible profession of faith is baptized. In the early church, that's what we saw too. In fact, 
paedo-baptism, baby baptism, didn't really make its way into the discussion in the church until the um, second century. And even then when it was being talked about, it was being written about as the wrong way to do it. Okay, so by the time we get to the second and third century, people were baptizing babies for two primary reasons. Do you remember what they were? Two primary reasons. One was theological, one was not. Yes. So we had infant mortality rate, right? So parents are saying, what happens to my son or daughter if they die? Let's baptize them, and that'll give some hope for the parents. So that's, that's not good theology. That's not good scripture. Um, we want to be sensitive to that, but that's not a compelling reason. The other one was theological. And, and go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was developed, um, formalized by Augustine. Augustine, sorry. Joshua will be so mad. By Augustine in the 4th century. And it was then codified in the Catholic Church. And the idea that if you don't, we don't wash away original sin through the act of baptism, that that baby would either perish. The later development in the, the Middle Ages was the whole concept of, um, oh, come on, not purgatory. Um, come on. What's that? No, what's where babies go? Limbo. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the idea of limbo. That's a, a medieval Catholic teaching that babies would go there if they weren't baptized. And, um, so, for the history of the Catholic Church, um, from the 4th century up to the Reformation, babies were baptized with this concept of, do you remember the, the Latin for this, the ex opere, operato? The independent operation, right? So they were, they were baptized... And the sacrament itself had the power to save, right? So I was baptized in the Catholic Church as an adult, but had I been baptized as a baby, um, just that act itself would save, okay? So up to the, even today, so up to the Reformation, 1520, 1525, 1530, Catholics believed in ex opere operato, the idea that, that God would take the faith through the sacrament and he would give it to the baby, Okay? Luther came along and he said, no, 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 no. It's not the sacrament itself. It is, he, remember he talked about the, he talked about faith being infused in the baby. What he called uh, fide infantium. And that God, God takes the faith and he, puts it into the baby. Remember he said, with the word and the water, they come together and the baby then will believe. All right? So I want you to notice, this is really important. Both Catholics and Lutherans in the Reformation believed that baptism and faith were together. Right? You didn't bat- Remember, you don't baptize without faith. Faith and baptism, they go together. Okay? So even, even up till Luther's time, there was, no, there was no dialogue about whether or not someone could be baptized without faith. The question was, how does the faith get in, right? If you're an adult and you believe, that makes sense. You believe and therefore you have faith. If you're a baby, how does it get in? So they had all these ways of trying to squeeze the faith into the baby, right? Through the sacraments, through um, God doing supernatural work. And then remember, Calvin came along, and what did our boy Calvin say? Calvin really, I mean, Calvin is, I would say, the father of this doctrine in the context of Presbyterianism. What did Calvin say? I mean, uh, Zwingli. You remember? He said, you don't, we don't need to worry about faith. 
in the context of baptism. He separated the two. Remember? He, originally he did not. And then with the movement of the Anabaptist, he swung back the other direction and he said, we still want to baptize babies, but we're not going to say that faith is necessary. And so this, this brought into... This brought into, into modern Presbyterianism, baptism without faith, or probably more accurately, baptism without confirmed faith. A true Presbyterian would say, I have no idea whether or not my baby believes or not. God may, may or may not, I don't know. But they say it's not necessary to actually engage in the act, okay? So both of these were forms of Baptismal regeneration, which means they believed, Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Anglicans, Episcopalians, they believed that when you baptize that baby, that baby is born again. Okay? They're saved. Zwingli says, oh, no, 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 we're going to baptize, but we have no idea what God's doing. The last group, which we know about, the Anabaptists came along, and it was credo only. And of course, they were heavily persecuted. They said, we will baptize only people who can make a profession of faith and no one else. Now, they didn't put an age limit off. If a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old repented and believed, they'd baptize. But it was a credo. It was a stated belief in the faith. Okay? So these really, when you come out of the Reformation, 1530s, 1540s, this is the kind of the movement you have. The Catholics are going to hang on to the sacrament, baptize the baby, the baby's saved. Luther, Luther actually became, toward the end of his time, the Lutheran church became ex opere operato too. They said, you know what, there's power in the word, in the water. We don't know how, but God's saving babies. So they believed in babies being saved. Anabaptists said, absolutely not. You've you got to be a believer, which of course, we're Baptistic. We, we don't historically come from Anabaptists, but this doctrine started with them. I shouldn't say that. This doctrine started with Jesus and the New Testament and the early church. It was perverted throughout the Middle Ages. The Anabaptists were the first one to claim it in the 16th century. Okay? Um, and so these are really interesting. This, we of course say, is most biblical. This, we would say, well, you know, it, I, it's hard to understand the, how faith is defined in Scripture that a baby has it. I mean, how does a baby have an understanding of the concept of sin? And, and how does the baby know that, that God is holy and he's going to judge that sin? And how does the baby then turn to the Savior? Right? So this is problematic, but at least Catholics and Lutherans and Anglicans said, we will not give up faith with baptism. They held on to it. And so I would say, this is, if, you're going to have to, if you had to categorize, this is number one because we believe it to be most biblical. This has to be number two, though. If you're going to talk about baptizing babies, you better figure out a way that faith's getting into that baby. Because you can't separate the two. Why? Because the Bible doesn't separate the two. Remember we talked about the, the progression from saved, unsaved to saved? Baptism and faith always, always, always go together. So then you get this whole category here, the Reformed people, which is just, and I say this in all love, it is wonky. It is a wonky theology. Um, the first time I was exposed to it, coming out of the Catholic Church in the seminary, I tried really hard to get my mind around it. And, and I think I have a decent understanding of it, but it's still so hard to fit into Scripture. Okay, so this is what I want to do is we're going to focus on this particular strain because that's, when we talk about our Reformed Presbyterian brothers, 
we have so much in common with them. Um, the large majority we have in common with them. This is one area that we disagree on. And of course, it has massive implications for us as, as a church. Zwingli started it. Calvin developed it. Right, so when you think of Presbyterian baptism or Reformed baptism, you, you must think Calvin because he wrote the most extensively on it and the Reformed teachings really come from him. So if, you, if you've ever worked through the Institutes of Calvin, um, it's, a, it's a very long um, systematic study that he wrote. It's excellent. Um, but if you get to book four, which is there are four books in his series, um, I would encourage you to read chapter 15 and then read chapter 16. And in chapter 15, he does, Calvin's brilliant. I mean, he was just brilliant, prolific writer and reader. And in chapter 15, he describes in great detail what New Testament baptism is, and he's spot on. I mean, it's just, you'll read it as a Southern Baptist and say, oh yeah, I mean, he's talking about, so this is from book four, chapter 15 of the Institutes. It is a confession before men. It is an expression of faith. It is a token of God's cleansing and the forgiveness of sins. It is a token of a believer's death and resurrection in Christ. It is a token of a believer's union with Christ. And you'd read that and you'd say, absolutely, I believe all that. Okay? In fact, Calvin wrote this. He said, baptism is the mark by which we publicly profess that we wish to be reckoned as God's people by which we finally, by which we by which finally we openly affirm our faith. Calvin Institute, chapter 15 of book four. Okay? We have no problem with that, right? And then you turn the page, and you read chapter 16, and it's like he drove the baptism car off the cliff, hit the rocks, and it explodes. You can't, you read them. The first time I read I thought, well, I'm, I must be missing this by a mile. I read it again. Read it again. I went to Dr. Durst, my systematic professor. I go, this doesn't make any sense. He goes, yeah, it's problematic. Well, that's, that's not good. I mean, these are, these are Reformed Presbyterian brothers that we, we love and we read. You get to chapter 16, and he then talks about, because remember, so in, from Augustine in the 4th century all the way up to the Reformation, babies were being baptized. In fact, you were baptized into the citizenship of the country and the church at the same time, right? So you start, you start messing around with baptism and you're gonna mess around with nationalism. So there were lots of political ties involved in this as well. Zwingli said we're not gonna do it. Luther said we're not gonna, so they, they wouldn't touch it, right? Chapter four, they said we gotta figure out a reason to baptize babies. So here's some of the things. Baptism by the Reformed or the Presbyterian um, believer is that it marks children off as holy. So if you are in a Christian home, your parents are believers, you baptize the child and that marks them off, right? That sanctifies them. Different from children of unbelievers. Okay? This is, this is paraphrasing some of those things. It means that the child is engrafted into the body of the church. Now I hope at some point right now your mind's going, oh wait a minute, Wait a minute. I hope so. I mean, your ecclesiology here should be firm enough to go, that, how does that work? We'll, we'll talk about how it doesn't work, and that's why it's problematic. So it marks the children off. It engrafts them in the church, and it baptizes them. Here's the key phrase for you. Into, ready, future repentance and faith. It's not present faith, repentance and faith, 
with baptism, baptism is a, you're baptizing them into that future promise that God will be gracious, that God will be faithful because you're godly parents and this is a godly church and we're going to raise them up to love and serve the Lord and God's going to, by his grace, save them through that. Okay? Now, as soon as you make that statement, they're baptized into future repentance and faith and you know your New Testament, you think, I can't think of a single example in the entire Bible that matches that and you'd be 100% right. In fact, you're not going to find a single verse that talks about baptism as something to do with future repentance and faith because when you get baptized, what does that mean? You have repented and you have believed, right? You have repented and you believed and then you get baptized. And so Calvin is what I believe that the reformers did, the magisterial reformers, they didn't reform enough. They just got stuck on this, right? Um, They wouldn't continue. Um, So Calvin's own theology in two chapters, side by side, don't match. In fact, Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, um, brilliant mind, he was neo-Orthodox, he said, the practice of infant baptism, listen, is irreconcilable with Calvin's own definition of baptism. He writes, quote, they are commending a baptism which is without decision and confession and does not match their own definition. Well, you don't want that. Right? I mean, you, we don't want to be outside of Scripture, but we solely don't want to be outside of our own definition of that which we are practicing. Okay? So then you say, well, all right, these are brilliant men. These are believers in Christ. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. How did they come to, how did they get to infant baptism? They weren't just going to leave it there, right? And so an entire theology was developed. Now, this is not just infant baptism, but... Um, it's how we interpret all of Scripture. Um, known as covenant theology. I don't know if you've heard that term before. Um, it's something we, we, we have pieces of covenant theology in our thinking. But essentially it's this, that, that we believe that God um, interacts and engages man and creation through covenants. Right? And you know lots of covenants. And so it, it, this, is, this is pretty late, actually. This is probably 7th, 8th century in the Middle Ages and then came full orb during the Reformation that the covenant would be the key term. It would define how we understand God relates with everyone and everything. Okay, And so um, there are three covenants. Well, um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Name some of the covenants that you know. What are some of the covenants in the Bible that you know are absolute covenants. It says they're covenants and it has all the covenant aspects to it. Give me a few. The Lord's Supper? Um, are you talking about in the context of, of, of Passover? So when I'm thinking covenant, I want, so let me start. What's the, what's the, first, what's the first defined covenant in Scripture? It's the Noahic covenant, right? What happened? God destroyed the world. And then he said to Noah, what did he say? I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. And then the covenant sign was a beautiful rainbow. First covenant, right? Noahic covenant. The next covenant, you say, well, I know the next one is then. because There aren't a lot, by the way. It was Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, right? And what did God say to Abraham? He said several things, actually. It was a big covenant. What, is, what was he going to do? He was going to make him the father of many nations. He was going to give him a land, right? And from his seed, which means multiple things, 
right? From his seed, the Messiah would come. He would then have this eternal kingdom, right? And the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Oh, you remember that. Because when you talk Presbyterianism and baptism, you better know Abraham and circumcision because those two are intimately tied, too intimately tied. That's part of the problem. Next covenant would be, so we have Noah, we have Abraham, we then have, which one? Mm-mm. I got two more before I get the New Testament. I'll give you a hint. Mountain, smoke, and fire. Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. Did you say, I'm sorry, Sarah. The Mosaic Covenant, right? God descends and he enters into a covenant through Moses. Um, the sign of that is probably, was probably Passover. Um, but he, he says, you know, I will be your God. You'll be my people, follow my laws. Um, next covenant would be the big one in terms of kingdom, the Davidic Covenant, right? Where God enters into a covenant with David and says, from your line, this I will have what? An eternal throne, a king that will never leave the throne, right? And, th- and that, that one's a little harder in terms of signs. Most think it's either the temple um, or the fact that it was a promise that his throne would go on forever. So you have four in the Old Testament and then you have one in the New Testament and that is the new covenant. It's not a very original name, right? I mean, something better. What's that? It's the new covenant, what does it have a name to it? It's the New Covenant. That's what we call it. That's what the Bible calls it. And, and those are your five clearly defined covenants in Scripture. Okay? It calls them covenants. Um, in the context of covenants, you usually have, well, you always have, actually. You have parties involved, two or more. And in those parties, they're agreeing to relate to one another in a particular way. And in the Old Testament, there were, there were ceremonies involved with that. There were signs attached to that. And so and a covenant was unmistakable. Okay, you say, okay, I got this. I'm clear on it. And then we get to Presbyterian Reformed theology and new covenants pop up. And I'm going to give you three. Maybe you haven't heard of these. Maybe you have. So they argue for a, a covenant of redemption. You ever heard that one before? The covenant of redemption. You say, where is that in the scriptures? It is not in the scriptures. So the Westminster Confession, which is the, uh, the standard operating procedure, that's the standard manual for the Presbyterian church, they define the covenant of redemption like this. It was made between the members, amongst the members of the Trinity before creation, the creation of the world. I'm just going to read you a paraphrase. So here's the idea of a covenant of redemption that from before the creation of the world, the persons of the Trinity entered into a solemn pact to accomplish the work of redemption. The Father, here's the covenant now, promising to give a people to the Son as his inheritance, the Son undertaking it to accomplish their redemption, and the Spirit covenanting to testify to Christ and apply his redemption to his people's hearts. Right. So this covenant of redemption, so these are all in the context of Presbyterian theology, and I'll, I'll explain why I'm, I'm putting these forth because the, the, it's the third one here that encompasses baptism. Um, this idea is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before anything ever was engaged in a covenant with one another. Okay? Now, there are several passages. Psalms chapter 2 probably comes to mind. Um, certainly Isaiah 53, um, the entire Gospel of John. You have this understanding that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before anything was, they had this dialogue and they engaged in it. The problem when we use the word covenant is that covenant is clearly defined in Scripture. 
So we don't want to use it as, uh, you know, uh, uh, an agreement they had, a plan they had, um, because that's not a covenant, right? But they would argue that the covenant of redemption is a real thing. It's an inferred covenant, not an explicit covenant, okay? So that's one they have. They have another one called, you probably know this one, maybe you've been taught this, and this is, this is a little bit harder, and many theologians are divided on this, including Baptist theologians, the covenant of works, or sometimes it's called the covenant of creation. Have you heard that one before? Covenant of works, covenant of creation. What might that be? What do you think that might be? This one's a little bit harder. This one I think we can actually figure out. Where would that covenant take place? Covenant of works or creation. Brent, what's that? Go ahead. Yeah, Genesis. God said to Adam and Eve what? What did he say? In the garden. You can eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So here's the relationship that was established. And certainly we know that God was relating to Adam and Eve in a particular way. Um, the hard part, when you talk about the covenant of works or the covenant of how God created mankind, again, we are missing this, this explicit teaching of covenant in Scripture. It's not there. Now, we're not saying that God wasn't relating to Adam and Eve. Of course he was. And we're not saying that, that he didn't put forth some operating parameters. But when we talk about covenant, it's parties entering into voluntarily uh, an agreement to live a particular way. So, this one's a little more debatable, but still difficult when you're just trying to, if you're going to do just good exegesis, I want to know what the Bible says. It's going to be hard to get that out, but, but more developed, I think, than this one. All right, I got one more for you. So these are all, by the way, these, are, these two are, are pre-fall, right? And now we have, and this is, this is the big one, the covenant of grace. Maybe you heard of that one before. Covenant of grace. Okay. So Reformed theology believes that there is an implied covenant that supersedes all other covenants. And it's this one, the covenant of grace. So be really clear, none of these are explicitly defined in Scripture. There are passages you can pull out to try to, to argue them and develop them. So these are not, these are not Scripture-free but um, when we talk about covenants, covenants are clearly defined in Scripture. And so when we add this term, this term has specific biblical meaning to it, right? How do I, what do I, if I want to know what a biblical covenant is, I want to go to the Bible and have the Bible tell me what a covenant is, right? I don't want to come up with a, a, a term myself. Okay, so let me, I'm going to read to you, because um, I thought it was just an excellent summary. This is from... Uh, Dwayne Garrett, he's a professor at uh, Southern, and he wrote a great book. I'm going to read to you the title, and don't get, bu- don't get upset. In fact, I had this sitting on my desk or somewhere, and someone, I think I might have been in a coffee shop, and uh, someone said, what is that book? It's, it's called The Problem of the Old Testament, Hermeneutical, Semantic, and Theological Approaches. And um, He's a hardcore evangelical Baptist believer. So he's not saying the problem of the Old Testament as in let's pick it apart and destroy it. What he was saying is that we're not careful with our covenants, right? So this is what he wrote. Just listen. He's, he's talking now about these three quasi-covenants. He says, the terms covenant of works and covenant of grace. So here's your, these are the big two, right? Number one, number two. This is how we started and this is how we're going to finish. 
He said, the terms covenant of works and covenant of grace are unknown in the Bible. The Bible knows and frequently uses the word covenant. It speaks of specific covenants for specific purposes between God and his people. Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, is a perfect example. Then he writes this, listen. God never uses the word covenant to describe his relationship to humanity in general, nor does the Bible in any text describe a super covenant of grace. Since the biblical writers frequently use the term covenant, it's hard to understand why reformed believers would neglect why the, why the I'm sorry, it's hard to understand why the writers of the scriptures would neglect to mention the two most important covenants in salvation history. So Presbyterians will come along and say, these two drive everything. Covenant of works, we screwed it up. Covenant of grace, God makes it right. Okay? So his argument is, if these two covenants really drive our theology, then certainly God would have approached it in the scripture. But then he said this. So here's here's your description of a covenant, and this is really good. He said, a covenant, by definition, is explicit. A covenant is a ritually enacted agreement between two parties by mutual consent and with appropriate ritual symbolism and declarations. In other words, he's saying there's no such thing as an implied covenant. Right? It'd be like saying that, you know, you bought this house. When did I buy the house? I never signed a contract. No, you bought the house. It's implied that you bought the house. Well, did you sit down? Did two parties engage in a contract? Did you sign a document? No, you didn't buy the house. Right? He, said, he writes this, the whole point of a covenant is that it simply is that simply giving one's word is not enough. Parties solemnly enact a covenant as a guarantee, here's key, that both sides will abide by the terms of the promise. Okay? So you can see some of the problems that immediately come from this, right? If if these are not explicitly taught in Scripture, and yet you're going to form an entire theology, this is not just baptism. This is how They interpret scripture, right? This is a hermeneutic, how they go to the Bible. You may be standing on ground that's not all that secure, okay? So you're probably thinking, why did you you get off on that ridiculous rabbit trail? Was that just a fun fat rabbit? You know, fat rabbits are good. They're meaty. You can eat them. But sometimes it loses our focus. So I'll tell you why I did that. Okay. You want to know why Calvin baptized babies? Calvin said the covenant of grace is the covenant that supersedes everything. It drives everything from the beginning to the end. Covenant of works God made with Adam and Eve, they fell. That covenant failed. Therefore, God instituted an implied covenant of grace. So when you think Noah... You think uh, Abraham, you think Moses, you think David, you think New Covenant, you get all these, and our Presbyterian brothers will say that they all go together. 
right to the cross of Christ. Again, highly developed theology over 500 years. Okay, lots of brilliant minds writing this together. Okay, so what would your first question be? If the argument is there's this covenant of grace that covers, that ties all the covenants together and moves us from, they would argue even pre-Noah, but from Noah all the way through the new covenant into the cross, what would your first question be if this was the theology you were getting? What would it be? What should it be? If you're going to develop an entire theology that's going to shape your entire interpretation of Old New Testament and establish doctrine like who's in the church, who's out of the church, who's being baptized, who's not being baptized, you've got to know that this is 100% accurate. Right? So the Presbyterian is going to interpret each of these covenants based upon the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is simple, right? That God, I'll, Let me read it to you. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the idea of the covenant of grace. Man by his falling, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein God freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Okay? So the moment that Adam and Eve failed, the Presbyterian argues that God instituted the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, they said, start all the way back with the first covenant given to Noah, and then progressively made its way through. Okay. Question. Brutal. No, no, no. We're going to use some terms that will clarify, but your thinking is spot on. They would not say, they would say that this is the culmination of the act. They would not deny the necessity, but they're not going to say, see new covenant as you see new covenant, right? They have to define it differently, right? Because the old covenant and the new covenant in their minds are essentially the same, right? Essentially the same work of God, okay? Okay, so I see that you're a little tired. I want questions. I want, this, I want this to be clear. I don't want us just spinning our wheels here. So there are two terms in biblical theology. Biblical theology, as you know, is the story of the Bible, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the big story of the Bible, right? And so when we look at, when we look at God working through Noah and Abraham, we see this narrative taking place. And so we have terms in biblical theology called, one is continuity, which means what? Continuity, it continues, right? And then we also have discontinuity. In other words, that does not continue, okay? So for example, one of the, one of the things that is obvious, a discontinuity from the Old to New Testament is circumcision, right? We don't circumcise 
our children, our male children, in accordance with the laws of Abraham or Moses any longer. We don't do that, right? So you, don't, you have discontinuity. But it doesn't mean that you don't have continuity on the spiritual level, right? We talk about circumcision of the, of the heart, right? So when we look at the covenants, the... Oh, maybe I'll do it like this. Continuity... discontinuity. If you are a Presbyterian, there is incredible continuity amongst the covenants, and there is very little discontinuity amongst the covenants, right? They're going to see a stream of thought and a stream of work by God. It's actually, from a theological standpoint, it's very beautiful. Um, it's, I don't think it's biblical, but it's beautiful how it's developed um, in trying to bring these things together. So, Tina, back to you. You had it spot on. Can I erase this? I used to do this in class, and my students were like, no! That was back before any cell phones. Now you just take a picture of it. Okay, so I say Old Covenant and New Covenant, and what comes to your mind? Old Covenant, New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament, good. Okay, before and after, that's right, work of Christ. Well, focus on these right here. Old and new. How new is the new? Is it new or is it just an upgrade? Right? Which one is it? I'm asking in jest, but this really drives, you understand why Presbyterians baptize their babies, it's driven by this. Brandon? So, so a renewal, Tina, this is what you were saying, so the old to the new, it isn't new, it's just better. It's an improved model. Right? We're, we're making good progress, culminating in the cross of Christ. It is a renewal, and this would be the theological term they use, and not, we would say, it is a replacement. Right? The old covenant is gone. The new has, as Paul said, has come. Right? So we don't live in accordance with the old covenant. We don't adhere to old covenant teachings because we now are under the new covenant. Right? In fact, when you read the New Testament, when you read uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that's all you're getting is this radically different culmination of, of power in Christ. Okay? And so when we talk about the covenant of grace... The covenant of grace, according to the Presbyterian, said, well, the covenant of grace is good because it's going to renew, the old is being renewed um, by the new covenant. We say, no, it's a replacement altogether. And one of the things that this comes down to is whether or not the new is really new or how new is the new. Um, so here's some, here's some major problems, I would say, with this idea of there are three, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm going to step back. They talk about the covenant. These are the three primary reasons you're going to get from a, an educated Presbyterian will be the covenant of grace, 
covenant community and the covenant signs. But that's going to be their argument. Why, you say, why do you baptize babies? They're going to say because of the covenant of grace, because of the covenant community, and because of the covenant signs. Okay? So I'm focusing right now on the covenant of grace, which I've already hopefully shown you have some theological issues with it. But here are some very specific problems. Right? When we take covenants and we squeeze them down and reduce them, so I say, well, Noah and Abraham... And Moses and David and the New Covenant, they're all, they have a very similar playing field. What are you doing to those individual covenants? You've heard the term reductionism before. You're, you're, you're diminishing the individual purpose, specific purpose of each of those covenants, right? Now, when you read through the Old Testament and you read Abraham and you read Noah and you read Moses, you're thinking, wow, these are all covenants, but they're very different and there are radical distinctions amongst them, Right? You know, when we, we talk about Moses, we're talking about this, this covenant and this law that comes into play. We talk about David, we're talking about a king. We're talking about Abraham, we're talking about, you know, his seed going forth. And so there are these very clear distinctions, right? Under the covenant of grace, they want to squeeze those down and go, yeah, they're different, but they're more similar than not. That makes sense? That's not a good way to approach scripture, right? We want the scriptures to teach us what the scriptures say specifically. So some passages you know that would say, it's not, it's not renewal. What kind of, I would say it's not just replacement. It's a radical replacement. Galatians chapter 4, right? Remember, Paul's dealing with the Judaizers, and they're coming in, and they're saying what? Oh, you got to get circumcised. Paul said this. He's talking about the interpretation, the allegorical interpretation of the two covenants. Remember, the old and the new. The two women, the two covenants, Hagar, remember, and Sarah, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. The other one is from, from Zion. And so you have two distinct covenants defined by Paul in Galatians. But I think this one's even more powerful. Hebrews chapter 8. The author of Hebrews says this, verse 7, for it is that first, for if the first covenant, now the first covenant we say, well, that's the old covenant. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a Second covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a what? New covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. So as soon as you hear that, you think, wait, well, we're talking about something very different. This is not just a, a, plain, a level playing field. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land. The covenant, that was the Mosaic covenant. He said, I'm not talking, this is not like the Mosaic Covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. I'll put my laws into their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. In other words, these covenants are radically different. Radically different. Okay. Are you with me? Okay. So you're gonna, if you're a Presbyterian, you're going to baptize your baby because you said the covenant of grace is seamless moving through. Abraham circumcised everybody there. We're going to baptize everybody here, okay? Scripture would say, step back. We're having difficulty seeing the covenant of grace, and we're going to see that each of these individual covenants actually have details and pieces that make them very different. In other words, discontinuity is real. They're not all the same. I'll give you one example, just one example. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, 
Listen to this. God, here's the covenant. This is a covenant promise. God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant. There's the word, so we don't have to make it up. Between me and you and your offspring, your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring, your seed after you. Okay? So you hear that word seed and you think, well, what, what does that mean in the context of the Abrahamic covenant? Um, a very famous systematic theologian, Burkhoff, who's a Presbyterian, he wrote this. He said, although the Abrahamic covenant had national aspects to it, at its heart, it was a spiritual covenant, which signified spiritual realities, including its sign and seal, that is circumcision, which becomes baptism. Okay, So he flattened it way down. Now you read this and you think, okay, well, uh, to your offspring, one way of thinking of offspring is you're thinking what? What's the most literal understanding of offspring? Your children. Now that's, that's biological. That's physical. Abraham's children were to be circumcised. And, and that's true, right? So we would say that, that certainly circumcision pertained to, physical circumcision pertained to the physical seed. But there are three other seeds to be understood in the context of Genesis 17. So the first would be, well, Circumcision pertains to baptize to uh, circumcising your children. Seed also, though, pertain to certain children. Who were they? Well, that's another one. No, you're, so you're right. So that that's actually leads to Christ. So all males were circumcised. All of, in fact, it was commanded that all of Abraham's household had to be circumcised, right? But another seed was identified as a seed that the Messiah would come from through the line of Isaac and Jacob, right? So, oh, okay, so there's actually two seeds in this discussion. Oh, there's another seed because we know that that word in the Hebrew is singular. Seed, not seeds, and the seed singular is the who? It points to the Christ. He goes, so there's three seeds. So there's another one. There's actually a fourth seed, and that fourth seed is you. It's the spiritual um, work of Christ. Galatians chapter three, listen, this is you. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Oh, there it is again, faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now listen to this. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What seed is that? That's the church. So you scratch your head and say, okay, I, I read one verse, and then you develop that further in Genesis 17, and you have all of Abraham's physical seed. You have this, the children of the promise, Isaac and Jacob. You have the seed of Christ, and you have the church. Why am I saying this to you? The covenants are complicated. They're complex, right? So you can't do a, a simple one for one if they circumcised all of Abraham's children, then we have to baptize all of ours. Well, that's the simple equation. All of Abraham's children were baptized, I mean circumcised, therefore all of our children should be baptized. Okay? Co the covenants are not a simple one-for-one -one movement like that. They are far more complicated. So the implication is, is really simple. If we want to understand the covenants and how they work, we have to know the covenants in the context in which they were taught. I can't move pieces around 
in order to create a theology. <clears throat> I have to understand what it meant in the context of the time. Um, and so the thinking is this, the very basic thinking for the Presbyterian is all of Abraham's seed were circumcised, saved or unsaved, right? They were all. Ishmael and Isaac were both circumcised, right? Well, salvation only came through Isaac. So they said, well, they baptized all, they circumcised all of the children then. Therefore, in the context of the church, we should, what? We should baptize all of our babies now. That's not an oversimplification. I mean, this is the theological tie. Abraham circumcised all his seeds. Genesis 17, verse 7. We need to baptize all of our seeds. Are you with me? All right. All right. The problem is, under the new covenant, who is baptized? Which seed? It's not that it's not a seed of Abraham. Which seed? Genesis, I mean, Galatians chapter 3. As many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ through faith. So it is the right seed, Abraham, uh, Genesis 17, 7, but it's not just all seeds or physical seeds or, or, or national seeds. It's those who are saved. That makes sense? So you want to say, I'll make the tie. It's a great theological tie, but it's not going to be all people or all babies. It's going to be people who believe because that's what the New Testament says because that's the new covenant. It is truly new, okay? Um, all right, can I, what, what's my time here? Are you dying? Are you dying? I'm doing all right. It's 8 o'clock. I might actually, I actually might get through this. I never get through it. I never do. See, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that and it's not going to happen. Okay, so the first, the first big problem, they're going to argue we baptize our babies because of the covenant of grace. You're going to say, wait a minute, I don't even know that covenant is real. And even if it were real, you're taking all the other covenants and you're flattening them down and you're trying to do these simple one-for-one equations. Abraham circumcised all his children, therefore we should baptize all of ours, right? Not good, strong exegesis, okay? That's why, by the way, my beloved, they, the, the reformers did not use Scripture much to develop these teachings. And I'll, I'll show you that next time we meet. We're going to go through every single New Testament passage they argue from, and they're very, very weak. In fact, Calvin and Zwingli said, We're not gonna, we, won't, we won't do that. We're not going to try to argue from Scripture. In fact, you've ever seen the debate between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul before he died? I don't know if you ever saw if you, ever, if you haven't watched it, it's fantastic. Watch it. There's a better one, actually, by James White and, and Strawbridge. Is it Jer- Jeremy Strawbridge? That's a great debate. I'll send them to you. Um, MacArthur goes first. And MacArthur, what does he do? He's like, Scripture, 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 Scripture. Just essentially establishing um, I mean, a credo-baptism saying you shouldn't baptize babies. R.C. stands up and he goes, I'm not going to argue from Scripture. I'm not going to go toe-to-toe. He's like, the debate should have been over for the evangelical right there. You say, I, well, I don't need to listen anymore, right? And so he develops, he develops entire covenant theology, right? Um, okay, so number one, covenant of grace, problematic. Number two, they're going to come along and they're going to argue for Covenant community. Now, you hear community and you get all excited, right? Because you're here and you love community and your pastor loves community. And now, this is a big one. So their understanding of covenant community is the church is made up of visible 
and invisible people, essentially. The visible church is everybody who's gathered. The invisible church are those who are truly saved. In other words, it is a a mixed body. Not mixed up. Mixed body meaning what? Who's in the church? Saved and unsaved. Now, I hope I hope when I I hope your your spiritual baptistic antenna is going, I don't like this. You get that spidey sense, right? There's something wrong with this. A mixed body. Right? We go to great lengths here to make sure that someone's profession is real, that they're baptized, they become members of the local church, and they're actual believers, right? And, and Baptistic churches will always do that. Um, now again, so here's some really interesting, it's confusion within their own theology. This is, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Who is to be part of the covenant community of, under the covenant of grace? This is from the Westminster Confession 7.3. The elect by repentance and faith. You go, what? Okay, that's right. Who's part of the church? The elect are part of the church through what? Repentance and faith. And then the question is, well then, how can you baptize infants? And they write this. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. This is so brutal on the brain. While acknowledging, you know, anytime you start off like that, you're in trouble, right? While acknowledging that the life and salvation promised in the covenant of grace are inherited only by the elect, so they actually make a distinction in the church of the elect and the non-elect. And the elect are those who have been saved by grace through faith. They may be babies, who knows. And then the non-elect who won't persevere to the end because they're not truly saved. But in, the, in this church, they write, while acknowledging that the life and salvation promised in the covenant of grace are inherited only by the elect, we believe that the covenant promise, together with its accompanying obligation, is extended to Abraham and his seed. That would be who? Everybody. Parents and children. Anybody who's there. To his seed. Okay? And so the justification, it's very simple again. One God, one spirit, one church, one baptism. Abraham circumcised, we baptized. One God, one spirit, one church, one people, one covenant coming in. And so the old and the new, it's not, remember, it's not new, it's renewed, right? It's not categorically different, it's just better. Does that make sense? Okay, are you, are you tracking this with me? Okay, um, so they they fully agree that we have a mixed body. If you go into a Presbyterian church and you said to the pastor, do you believe everybody's here is saved? They say, ah, no, absolutely not. And they would fundamentally agree, no, we, we have a mixed body. And that's part of their theology because with Abraham and the nation of Israel, you had what? Believers and non-believers. Everybody was circumcised, right? And so they take that and they place it upon the church and they say, well, it must be the same now. In the church, you have saved and unsaved. It's a mixed body. Um, that's really fascinating in the context of this covenant community. So this is how it worked practically. There's some real dangers into this, I believe. And we'll talk more about some of the implications next time we meet. You baptize. So Brandon Hazel bring Caleb up. We're a Presbyterian church. And they say we want to baptize Caleb. They're going to baptize him on the eighth day because they want to adhere to that Old Testament teaching. 
they won't baptize him and say that he's saved. They won't even acknowledge that he has any faith because they have no idea, right? What they will say is, what we will say as a church, as a Presbyterian church, is they're believers and they can baptize him, remember, into what? Into future repentance and faith. But he does enter into the new covenant community. So that baby, on the day that baby's baptized, becomes a member of that body. Now you say, well, how does he vote? <laughs> right, we're so in our church body. Well, how's he going to vote? Well, as soon as he's old enough, he will vote. But actually, they don't usually vote in Presbyterian churches. Um, he's a member of that body, so he's part of the new covenant community, even though he may not be saved. This is really important. The Presbyterian will say, you can be part of the new covenant community and not be saved. Yeah, that's good. That's right, Bill. It's, it, it should go, I'm, I'm, it's wonky, right? And they apply the curses and the blessings of the old covenant. If the child is raised up in the faith and they continue in the faith, then they will receive all the blessings the new covenant promises. If the child being raised in the covenant community rejects the gospel, rejects Christ and turns away, they will receive upon them all the curses of the old covenant. And so this is actually a very, I would say a very cruel thing to do to a child, not only because it's not biblical, but you're saying, listen, if you deviate, all the wrath of the old covenant is going to come upon you because you are a member of this new covenant community. So do you see, the, it's, it's kind of a, it's the opposite direction. Somebody comes through those doors and they want to join our church. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna hear a profession of faith. We're gonna go through a members class. We're gonna see fruit in their life. And we're gonna bring them in based upon their profession of Jesus Christ, right? The Presbyterians start in the opposite direction. They're, we're gonna bring everybody in and we're gonna see who peels off. Okay? And who peels off is those who are not elect. Right? Well, who stays around? Well, it's the, the ones who stay, stay the course are those that God ordained to stay the course before the foundation of the world. Those who are predestined to be saved. Those who don't, fall away. But it's not to say fall away. It's not like they are on the outside and then experience the wrath of God for rejecting Christ they never knew. They're on the inside and they are kicked out. Just like you would be expelled from the nation of Israel. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. Um, the parts of this, I think, are very, very sad. Their primary verse for this, and we're, go ahead, Tina, I'm sorry. Correct. Yeah. Oh, this. No, no, it's so good. It's so good. They would argue, yes. They would argue that they were elect, obviously, because only the elect are saved, right? They're going to, we agree with that. Only the elect are saved. They wouldn't, what they would say, so this is how. Presbyterian theology is very attractive when it comes to the apostate passages, right? So we looked at that, Hebrews chapter 2, um, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10. He, we did that. How does someone taste the Holy Spirit and then leave? Were they ever saved? Right? We try to work through that. The Presbyterians said, oh, that's easy. They were in the new covenant. They apostatized themselves. They left, and then they came back. 
Right? They were part of the New Covenant community, and they left of their own volition. And they either came back and they were restored, or they were left to perish, a la Hebrews 10, 26, 27, 28. Right? It's, a very, it's a very good way to interpret. Good. It's a convenient way to interpret those passages. I, we, we, we would not argue that, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and it's not just the, the push today, the movement today into Reformed theology for the sake of children is huge. Leaving Baptistic circles to get that security of that child being in the new covenant that they have to forsake. Remember, you're in and you got to leave it as opposed to coming to a saving grace and joining. Right? We raise our children in the faith. Right, to know and love and serve the Lord. <laughs> My boys were raised in the faith, but they were not added to the new covenant community until they what? Became new covenant members by being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay. You still with me? You're doing, go ahead, Bill. No, so, so no, it's really good. It's a great question. So remember, in, in, in denominations like the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, they believe in baptismal regeneration. So they're, they're alive from the baptism itself. So they're going to say that they're going to be saved. In the Presbyterian Church, they will say, we don't know. They're honestly going to say that because they, they, they will say that God, maybe or maybe he, he did not, he, at, the, at birth, that, I mean, at, at baptism, he actually made them alive. They won't say that he didn't, but they won't say that he did. And so until there is that movement of, they, they, I think they use the term confirmation too, that same idea, remember, you remember confirmation, Bill, that same idea that we now have evidence that the person really does know Christ. Before that, they would, they would hedge their bets. They would say, we don't know. Right? Because remember, being in, the covenant, new, being in the new covenant community does not mean that you're a true elect member of the covenant community. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, no, they are a member of the church. Absolutely, they are a member of the church. They would say several things. One, that they are, because they are part of the new covenant community, they have access to all the blessings that God will provide, right? They're already in. They have to turn away. So by being baptized through believing parents, you are receiving all the covenant blessings unless you reject them, right? So you're, you're getting the gifts unless you don't take the gifts. Um, that would be the primary one. But, but, but theologically, they would argue that it's necessary that they do that because that's, that's in line with Abraham and circumcision, that it's wrong not to baptize. They would say it's unbiblical. I mean, yeah, it's unbiblical to not baptize your baby because you are not, not in line with um, the old covenant. Okay, so some of the very practical problems, you probably already thought some of these out. I'm sorry, I think Kirk just texted me. Watch, he's going to be critiquing. 
saying, you said something wrong. Can you make a quick announcement for Silicon Valley Reformed Baptist Church will not be at Planned Parenthood tomorrow unless someone else can come. Uh, we won't be able to go either. If anyone's free, let them know. No critique. <laughs> okay. Real time, that's good. Okay, so tomorrow, yeah, um, Kirk would need someone to go with him. Um, okay, some of the problems with this. Right off the top, if we have a mixed body, what are some of the issues? Think about our church. What are some of the problems? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a major issue, right? <laughs> no, that's right. Well, and technically, the elders would have the authority, and in that structure, they would, right? Yeah. Lord's Supper, that's a big debate. So Presbyterians are split on that. I mean, if you're going to do, do baptism, you've got to do Lord's Supper as soon as you can. But most don't. Most do not do pedo communion. Um, there's, again, tons of theology on that. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. See, you're so baptistic, this is like, I just don't, can't fit it. You're trying to get it in, and it, well, it won't get in, so don't worry about it. Um, so Burkhoff, again, systematic theology, he said this, the Abrahamic covenant is still in force and is essentially identical to the new covenant. So that thinking kind of just sweeps through all of this. Right, they're not making clear categorical distinctions. Um, so, when we think of new covenant community, when you think of the body of Christ in the New Testament, you're thinking of something radically different than Israel. Are you not? I mean, Israel was mixed, right? Everybody was circumcised. Some were true Israel, as Paul says in Romans chapter nine. Right? Not all who are Israel, are of Israel. Some were, some were not. Some were saved, some were not. But when we think of the context of the New Testament church, everybody in the church was believed to be saved. Does it mean everybody was saved? No, of course not. But everybody made a profession and lived as though they were saved until they didn't, and then you have Matthew 18 in church discipline. Okay, so Old Testament was clearly mixed. In the New Testament, who's in the church? Who's in the church in the New Testament? Those who are born again. Those who are regenerate. Those who are made alive, right? And so we don't, we don't baptize everybody. We baptize those who have been born again because we don't practice a mixed body. In fact, you're not gonna find a single letter by Paul or Peter. You're not gonna find a single epistle or the gospel. You're not gonna find anything in Acts that talks about the church being mixed, believers and non-believers. It's just the opposite. The, the church, the body of Christ is made up of those who have been born again, have made a profession of faith, were baptized, and then what? Added to the role, right? Acts chapter two. Okay. Um, so we only baptize those who we believe believe, right? They could be duping us, but the profession of faith is what brings them in. Um, so you say, well, what... If it's not, if it's not, if it's renewal, what is renewed? What is what does the Presbyterian get excited about? If it's not new, new, it's just renewed. They 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 would argue this. They would say that the new covenant broadens. It's better. It, it includes the Gentiles, not just Jews. So it's bigger. They would say the promises of the new covenant are better. Right? They bear more fruit. We no longer have to be under the law. We no longer have to submit to Levitical rules of, of cleansing and sacrifice. It's better in all those ways. And yet at the same time, they will argue it is essentially the same. It is essentially the same. 
Now, here's the one passage you want to go to if you're trying to have dialogue. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, where the Old Testament teaches to the New Covenant. Let me just read this to you. This is Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31, and this is the description of the New Covenant. And this is, this is not renewal of any kind. This is fantastically new. Listen, God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is when Christ comes, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now listen very closely. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord when Christ comes. I will put my law where? Within them. I will write it where? On their hearts. Listen. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. Who knew God in the old covenant? Those who were saved, many did not. God says clearly in the new covenant, who will know him? All will know him in the new covenant. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, in the new covenant, the new covenant is filled by believers. Not a mixed body, right? A regenerate body. In fact, D.A. Carson, he wrote this. He said, the new covenant will bring some dramatic train changes from tribal nature to a priesthood of all believers. Right? You are a priesthood of all believers. First Peter. Knowledge of God would no longer be mediated through specially endowed leaders. All of God's covenant people would know him from the least to the greatest. Okay? In other words, when you're born again, you become a child of God, the Holy Spirit seals you forever, right? So this whole idea of, of staying inside the new covenant community and receiving the blessings or rejecting it and being cursed can't happen under the new covenant because if you're born again and you are God's elect, then all the promises are sealed to you by the Spirit, right? So we can't have someone moving out or moving in. So not only does the structure change from the old covenant, so the covenant community goes from a mixed community in the old to a regenerate community in the new, but the nature of the people change. Again, Jeremiah 31, we will all know God. The law is written upon our hearts. We are all born again. We are all all indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that is the promise that Christ brings to us. Does that make sense? So we're talking about two dramatically different covenants, but now listen to this. This This is from my friend Doug Wilson whose theology on this I think is horrible. Listen to this. He said, some new covenant members are regenerate. He's talking about the mixed body. Some are not. The Pado-Baptist holds that the difference between the covenants is that the promises in the new covenant are much better, meaning that the ratio of believers to unbelievers will be dramatically different. So the new covenant is new and good in that there will be more people in the new covenant than the old covenant. And then he says the history of new Israel will not be like the old Israel. And so that's his equation moving through there. All right, um, can, I, can I get you for seven more minutes? Because I, I would love to finish this. So the covenant of grace, was their argument, circumcision of Abraham, 
Baptism, baby in the new. Covenant community, it was a mixed body then. It's a mixed body now. Okay, those are real, just big concepts, okay? There's one more, and that is the sign, right? Covenant, the covenant signs. Now, this is where um, we get into the actual application of, of what's transpiring in these covenants, okay? So they're, they're going to argue, we baptize babies because of the covenant of grace, we baptize babies because the covenant community is mixed, and we baptize babies because the signs are the same. You say, well, what are the signs? What was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Well, what's the sign of the New Testament covenant? What is it? It's baptism. Well, all right. Who did Abraham circumcise? Everybody. Every male, right? And the males covered the females. And therefore, we should baptize everybody in the new covenant because the signs are essentially the same, right? In fact, they looked at, they said, well, you know, in the old covenant, you had circumcision, you had two signs, circumcision and Passover. And they said, you know what? We got those two signs here in the new covenant. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? We, we, we just transfer those over from old to new. Circumcision to baptism, Passover to the Lord's Supper, okay? And so one thing you'll, you'll hear is that they will say that baptism is, you've probably heard this before. This is not in Scripture. Is the sign and, you know it, and, and the seal, Sign and the seal. Hmm. Well, what, is, what does that mean? This is the sign, baptism. We baptize babies because that's the sign that they're now part of the, the new covenant community. They're in. How do you know they're in? We baptized them. How did you know someone was a child of Abraham? You circumcised them, right? So it was the sign, baptism was a sign, and it was the seal. What was the seal? Now, this is very interesting. Again, I don't think you're going to find this in Scripture, but what was the seal? Because you think seal and you think Holy Spirit and you think you're sealed in your union with Christ, right? That's not what they're talking about. What are you sealed to? No. You're sealed to the blessings if, if you stay the course and you're sealed to the curses if you don't, right? The covenant is binding. You're sealed to one of these two paths depending upon how you respond, right? Now again, so this, this, this piece of it I find very disturbing. Essentially, you're saying to, we're gonna baptize you and if you don't stay the course, then the wrath of God is gonna come down upon you because you have broken his covenant. Better not to baptize the baby, in my opinion, right? Um, okay. So you'll hear that sign and seal, sign and seal. Sign. I remember the first time I was reading, I'm thinking, where, where is this in Scripture? Where, where is this dialogue of sign and seal? And of course, you, you can't get it, right? The sign uh, is, is part of a covenant, which we get, but the seal, we always think of the seal, we think of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is our seal. He seals us for the day of redemption. So again, so remember, it's the old covenant, it, the new's not really new. The old covenant, under the old covenant, if you adhered to the laws of Moses, you were blessed. If you violated, you were cursed. 
that's the, that, so yeah. So the, it's a great question, Mark. No. Pedobaptism is theologically driven, right? So it's a, it's a theological construct. Covenant of grace moves covenants, right? We would argue credo-baptism is exegetically driven. We're going to go to texts and say, why do you baptize only believers? Well, I read these texts and that's what it tells me, right? So one is theologically heavy, one is biblically heavy. They're going to, they would completely disagree with that statement that I just made, right? But then you would press them and say, well, then show me. I mean, work really hard to show me. And if you know the passage we're going to look at next time, it's a, it's a hard battle for them. And they know it. And they know it. No, it's not. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, they're reformed through and through. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So all the sola fides, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gloria, all that comes in. No, I know. It's such a great question. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, there's a piece of this that has a, a works component to it. They wouldn't say salvifically, um, but so we look at the, under the new covenant, we believe it to be God does a work in us, right? We're justified by God. You, you can't be lost. You can't work your way in. You can't work your way out, right? But embedded in new covenant theology for the Presbyterian, you're in, but you can work your way out, right? So there's a thread that comes through this. Um, now that said, I mean, healthy, not, not the liberal Presbyterians, but the um, Reformed Presbyterians are going to hold to um, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone going to hold to that. But there's a weird piece to this. Very weird. Brandon? Correct. That's, a, that's such a great point, Brad. No. So they're thinking, they're going to say it's spiritual too. But what we see being transferred into the New Testament is physical to physical rather than physical to spiritual. Right? It's a great point. So we're going to get, we'll do the problems and we'll close. So the signs. Now, I'm going to quote Doug Wilson again because he stole one of my pastors. So here you go. Ready? <laughs> Listen. This is, this is a completely false statement. He said, When all the data is considered, it does not lead us merely to affirm that infant baptism is consistent with Scripture, nor even that a biblical case may be made for it. Rather, all the evidence combined demonstrates beyond question that the scriptures require the practice of infant baptism. We know with certainty that some first century Christian churches had infant members and the apostles approved and taught this practice. That is, that's off the reservation. Not only is it not accurate scripturally, that's not accurate historically. You're not going to get a single true biblical Presbyterian 
church historian who's going to agree with that statement. The true, the, the Presbyterian church historians say, no, it wasn't there in the beginning. It wasn't. We didn't do baby baptisms. And when we did, how did they baptize them? To be saved. Remember? Right? We, we don't, this is all new theology. This did not start with, until we got to Zwingli in the 1520s. Right? So, a bad statement. A really bad. It, we got to be very careful to make definitive statements like that unless we have a lot of evidence um, too dogmatic for me. Okay, let's close. Problems with the signs. I'm sorry, Bill. Oh, yeah, no. It is a great, there are several pieces of this we'll look at next week. Um, That's a huge one, right? So you may mislead someone into damnation, right? If you tell them they're part of it already because of what God did, not because of any salvation by grace through faith and then that's the road they're on then they may end up condemned now we would argue that if they're elect they won't because all of God's elect will be saved but the potential for deception and that's the case in any church that baptizes babies right and one of the things they argue is that well when you're older and you see a baby being baptized you will you will know that your parents did that to you and that you entered into the new covenant community and that you are the sign and seal is upon you and therefore that affirms your faith it's the thinking it's, it's dangerous oh you're it is that's exact there is there's so much ties to that right we see that it's good very good okay um I'm going to expedite this. Ready? The first circumcision, who was the first person circumcised in the Bible according to biblical circumcision? Who was it? Who was it? It was Abraham. When was Abraham baptized? And when was Abraham circumcised? Before or after he believed? After he believed. Genesis chapter 17, Paul confirms that. Romans chapter 4. It was after he believed that it was credited to him righteousness and then he was circumcised. He said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Presbyterians are telling me that we baptize to a future repentance and faith and yet the prototype for circumcision, if they're saying it's circumcision baptized is the same, the prototype was faith and then circumcision. Problematic, right? So they will argue that it's the spiritual component of circumcision in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant. That's why we baptize our babies. But if they're going to hold to the spiritual component, then you would say, well, they better believe first because that was the prototype by Abraham. And of course, the problem with that is, well, I don't know about you, I can't, I can't talk to infants. You know, I, I, I can barely talk to Ellie and she's, she's jabbering, but I don't know what she's saying. If I said, do you believe in Jesus? Do you confess your sin? She could, blah, 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 blah. You know, I have no way of having this dialogue, right? So, the, the prototype of Abraham and circumcision would be believer's baptism only. He set the standard.
Problem number two, though, and this is fantastic. The primary purpose of circumcising, circumcising all of Abraham's descendants, the primary, two primary reasons. Number one, to mark out a physical seed, right? So here's your biblical theology. The physical seed was the nation of Israel. Israel was known as God's son, right? That's the prototype. That's the pointer to whom? To the true seed, Jesus Christ, who is God's true son, right? So all of Israel was circumcised to point to Jesus Christ. And why only males? Why only males? Well, I'm not, I'm not talking anatomically. Why only males? Because the seed of Abraham that would be the Messiah would come through the male line, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Christ, right? So all of this, all the circumcision in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, right? In fact, the last, this is, this is great, the last significant Old Testament circumcision was Jesus in the New Testament. He was the last one. You say, well, what, what about Paul and Timothy? Jesus was the last one that had any significance because with his circumcision and his death and resurrection, circumcision was no longer necessary, right? Because we didn't enter through the old covenant. We entered through the new, which is salvation by grace through faith, right? And then comes baptism. Um, all right, so problem number three, circumcision under Abraham and then incorporated in the laws of Moses, Leviticus 12, Joshua 5. It was a mixed body, believers and non-believers. Everybody was circumcised. So this is fascinating. And I asked this question to a Presbyterian brother. I said, so in the Presbyterian church, who's who's baptized in the Presbyterian church? Do you know who gets to get baptized? What's that? Well, yes, but specifically, it is a son or daughter, a baby of a believer, mother or father or both who are in good standing with the church, right? And you say, all right, well, that's interesting. I don't know how you're getting that from Scripture, but I don't even know how you get that from the covenant theology, right? Who was baptized under Abraham and Moses? Every single person. And suddenly now we've whittled it down to only children of believing parents in the context of a community in good standing. Well, that's fancy. And so... (laughs) I asked my brother, I said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm, if I'm baptizing everybody, then wouldn't I baptize anybody who wants to be baptized? Anybody who comes in, shouldn't I go out on the streets and gather people and say, come in and get baptized? Because that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense under the Mosaic law. Abraham and his whole household were baptized, right? Not just his children, slaves, servants. So shouldn't we just baptize everybody all the time? That matches better, but that's not what they do. Um. oh it's brutal it's brutal yeah depending upon the church they may not baptize right but a 17 year old would be more difficult so here's another question I had <laughs> I'm a believer Bran is not a believer I want to baptize his baby do I get to baptize him in some churches, they say, absolutely not, because the parent has to be a believer. I said, but I'm a grandparent. He's part of my household, right? And some churches will say, oh, yeah, then we should, right? So there's actually great debate on that. It gets wonky. You guys say, why is it so wonky? Because it's not, we would say it's not biblical. It's, it's wonky, right? 
my, my great-great-great-grandchildren should be able to be baptized even if none of their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents believed because they're part of my household, right? Okay. Give you a couple more. Well, maybe just one more. Um, if you're going to do a, a parallel between Old Testament circumcision, you want a, a New Testament piece, it would be circumcision of the heart, as you've already said. Right? That's, you want to make a good parallel, that's it. It's not baptism, right? It's circumcision of the heart. Colossians chapter 2. In him also, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in, say it with me, baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I think Colossians chapter 2, they use that in a different way. We'll look at that uh, next time we meet. But that's, I think, the most powerful. You want to talk about circumcision? It's circumcision of the heart. And when your heart is circumcised by the Holy Spirit, then what do you do? Then you go get baptized, right? Then you go become a member of that church. Yeah, Gina. In some, like, that's right. That's they 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 will Presbyterians hate rebaptism. That's correct. If they've already been baptized or. wants to be baptized based upon our profession of faith, yes. some will, some won't. Most will, because remember, most, most Presbyterian churches are credo also, right. as you said earlier. Yes. But if the 17-year-old came in and said, I don't believe in Christ and I want to be baptized, he'd have a good argument. The argument is, why wouldn't you baptize him? Because you're baptizing him into what? Into future repentance and faith. Well, just because he's not Eight days old doesn't matter. He's 17. Maybe he'll be baptized into future repentance when he's 35. But at least give him a chance. Bring him in. See what happens. Correct. It would be the consistent thing. Um, okay. Um, let me close here. Paul's argument. Remember Paul's argument in, in Galatians? The Galatians were saying what? Salvation by grace through faith in Christ is good, but you also have to get circumcised according to the laws of Moses. This is a simple, simple argument for you. If baptism replaced circumcision, Galatians would have been one paragraph. He'd have said to the Judaizers, no, no, you're missing it. You're missing it. They don't need to be circumcised because they've been baptized. And baptism is the new covenant sign of circumcision, the old covenant. It's the same thing. Don't worry about it. And they go, oh, okay. Does he say that? Not at all. He says you don't need to get circumcised because the law no longer applies. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Grace and faith become the theme of Galatians over the law. But if baptism, if Paul thought that baptism was the same as circumcision, he had told the Judaizers, relax guys, they're being circumcised through baptism. It's the same thing. He doesn't argue that 
He doesn't even come close to arguing that. Okay. We don't baptize babies because the New Covenant teaching in the New Testament is a believer's baptism only. Hmm? We do not acknowledge a covenant of grace or a mixed covenant community or a sign and seal that parallel the Old Testament so closely. Questions? You've been so good tonight. I mean, that's like, just like, here, (laughs) pour information in. Questions? Do do, do, do you have the big picture? I want... I know I gave some, but I want the big picture. If you got the big picture, think covenant of grace and go, hmm. Think mixed church, saving and saved, go, hmm. And then think circumcision and baptism, sign and seal, hmm. Okay? Okay, so uh, we'll meet two weeks from now, and I'm going to pull the major passages they use to try to, right? So what happened was, Exegesis means you extract. Eisegesis means you press in to the text. Covenant theology created an entire structure, a covenant structure to interpret scripture, and then they press it into the text. They press it hard in the text. So much so that there are passages I've heard Presbyterian pastors preach, and I squirm because I know if you sit down, you open that up, you take out your Greek and you read that and you study, you say, no way, no way does it say that. No way. Passages that we're gonna look at and you're gonna, it's gonna make your hair go, what, what, what? You can't say that. And so I've struggled, I've struggled with the honesty of those passages being taught. Thinking, I know, I think I know you know better. That when Paul was talking in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, about the, the wife sanctifying the husband, that it didn't mean he, he saved the husband. And that, that the, the, the wife and the husband sanctifying the children, that it didn't mean he was saving the children. There's no way to get that out, and yet that's what comes out of it, right? And that's just one of many examples. So um, we'll look at that, and then any final questions? And then the, uh, the thought would be after this, um, since we're doing some good work on the college campuses again, uh, we're gonna do some really good practical, commit-to-memory apologetics. Some really good stuff. I mean, Kirk's got some great stuff right now that we've been working through that we'll be able to teach on. Uh, This is not going to be like theological. um, This is not going to be like seminary training. What we would like to do is establish, you know, the top 10 arguments you can make committed to memory. So when someone says to you, why do you believe that God exists? You're going to go, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Okay? Any questions on any of this that I covered tonight? Do, do you have a, a better grasp of it? Okay. Yeah, Tina. Covenant of grace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not textual. It's covenant of grace. Yeah, and if you, and it, it is, again, it's a sweet thought. There's a sweetness to it that, that God, you know, the covenant of works failed 
And then God established this umbrella, the covenant of grace, and all of them kind of are leading up to this culmination of the new covenant, which is not really new. It's just renewed. There's, there's, it's, it's, it's very systematic, right? And again, it's been written on by the most brilliant minds in the history of the church. So it's, there's a lot there to it. It's just we would say we don't think it's there. We don't think it's there. Yeah. Properly. Yeah. We treat them as others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I don't agree, but I can, I see Correct. where this comes from. Like, I see how they, they can look at us and look at what is happening in a lot of churches yep. and say, you know, we don't treat them the same. Correct. And I, I can. Yeah, and so, so that has been used in a dialogue that I've had. Um, those are, we would say those are unhealthy churches. Right, um, but the argument is that well, you 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 treat your you, you'll take the Vodibach and uh, Viper in a diaper, and you will keep your son or daughter outside of the church until they repent and believe, and then you bring them in, right? Um, and someone said this to me. I said, listen, I, I raised my sons to know and love and serve Christ, and so they were always in the context of the fellowship of believers here, being taught being prayed for, being worked with, and raised up. They were never, did you ever feel like a pariah, Brandon? Did you ever feel like, you know, some filthy pagan that you couldn't come to church? No. And so uh, I would argue that in that perspective, if it's happening, is wrong, independent of your theology on baptism, period, right? Um, but that has been used. I think it's, and if it's true, then the church is unhealthy, but it's certainly not Baptists, right? Baptists don't, um, and this was actually said that Baptists, we, we treat our children, we don't train them up properly and we treat them like pariahs. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. Um, maybe. Not in our church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I know they're... Correct, correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, they are. <laughs> like image bears, right? Yes, I agree. So we'll talk about this more next time because this is one of the, as Bill was alluding to earlier, some of the fallout of this, one of which is how we raise our children, how we see our children, and how we raise them in the context of our family and the church. And those, are, those implications are huge, right? I don't think the Presbyterian model is a better model. I think it's a much worse model. I, I also don't think that, you know, having your children outside of the of the community of the saints is a good model either so those are both bad there's i think there's a, a gospel way to approach it so let, let me pray father thank you for uh, this time i praise you so much for the patience of my brothers and sisters i ask lord that you would by your spirit take um the major pieces of this dialogue tonight and that you would press it upon the hearts and minds of our brothers and sisters here um, that you would enable them to understand these teachings um, in the, the Reformed Presbyterian circles, um, why they are, are difficult to embrace, and, and why we are Baptistic, Father. Um, I pray that you would take this doctrine, make it known to us, that we might live in accordance with it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. No, I know there's a lot there. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.